Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. A reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. This is the word of the Lord. and a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. And again, my friends, this is the word of the Lord. And the gospel, according to Matthew. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in whose house the scribes and the elders were gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And this is 
the gospel of the Lord. When uh, my wife Emily and my daughters and I moved to Orange County in 1994, we experienced a very weird initial sense of disorientation because we lost our mountains. We lived, had lived near the foothills of the Western San Gabriel Mountains for many years. Uh, we could drive up to Mount Baldy Village in 15 minutes from our house. And the view from our front and backyards, it was just spectacular, especially in the winter when the mountains were covered in snow. But after we moved, we couldn't see those mountains any longer from our house at least, except from one upstairs window on a very clear day. And it felt very strange. It even took us a while to figure out where north was since we had no visible mountains to serve as our geographical compass. Losing our mountains was a big deal to us. You know, when, when people lose important physical markers, whether it's, it's mountains or it's trees or it's buildings or whatever, they often feel like they've lost a part of themselves. So it's understandable that people would be concerned if Jesus had said that he planned to single-handedly tear down their cherished temple and then reassemble it in three days time like a superhero. It probably sounded arrogant to them, not to mention insulting and even blasphemous, with Jesus assuming that he had the right to wipe out the place where God's presence visited the people. Except, that isn't what Jesus said. Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple, and that did happen 40 years later when the Romans wiped out the city of Jerusalem and then massacred much of the population. Jesus also spoke of his own resurrection three days after his death. And apparently the witnesses had conflated those claims and, and used them as the basis of their testimony against Jesus. And as we know, their false testimony was sufficient to convict Jesus and ultimately have him sentenced to death. Well, by the time the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, uh, there, there weren't a ton of Christians in the Roman Empire, probably less than 7,000 Christians. Uh, and the total population of the empire was about 60 million, so, you know, that's not a lot. But this relatively small group of Christians, they, they were a busy bunch, with little churches popping up all over the place in homes and catacombs and even disused pagan temples once in a while. Many Jewish Christians had already been distancing themselves from the temple, um, some by choice, others by compulsion, and the destruction of the temple eliminated anyone's connection to that very cherished worship center. But for the Jewish people, the destruction of the temple was also wrapped up in the loss of their entire homeland, since the majority of the people in Israel migrated to other nations and began a, a time of displacement that last, has lasted 2,000 years. After centuries of having a homeland, even one that was longed for during periods of exile, the people had become wanderers with no geographical center and no visible house of worship. Faithful Jews had to come to grips with how they could encounter the presence of God if their temple was destroyed and their homeland unavailable to them. So synagogues became even more important than in the past, places of gathering and learning together. 
And the study of the Hebrew scriptures became an important way to be in God's presence. So if you no longer have your temple, was the thinking, you do still have your scriptures. Now, for the Christians, change had already come because of the inclusion of the Gentiles into this whole emerging Christian movement. If you were a Gentile Christian living in, say, Asia Minor, then the temple in Jerusalem might mean very little to you. But the gathering of faithful people over at your neighbor's house would factor very importantly in your spiritual value system. St. Paul wrote his letters to various churches prior to the fall of Jerusalem. So the Jewish temple was still intact during his time, but he had to repeatedly confront the tension that emerged between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who had a hard time seeing eye to eye on things like adherence to the Jewish law, the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, and so on. Rather than try to orient this new body of Christians toward the Jewish temple and all that it represented, Paul instead helped the people see that there was something new going on for them. Paul claimed that they all shared a common heritage with the people called Israel. The Jewish people, he said, were, were like, they were like branches on an olive tree, a, a natural result of being connected to the root that was the call of God to be his people for the sake and blessing of the world. Gentile believers, he said, were, were like a, a wild olive shoot, plucked out and then grafted into that tree, finding a, a new source of life even while some old dead branches were being broken off. You know, we can read that text of scripture that I read this morning. We, we can read it today and we can marvel at the mystery that is this relationship between Christian faith and the descendants of Abraham, the people called Israel. We can consider what it means to be, in a sense, grafted into a pre-existing root where others have lived before us. But it might help us to think about this. What what exactly have we been grafted into? I mean, what Israel do we share this route with? Is it the, the roller coaster Israel that we read about in places like Kings and Chronicles that, that moves between faithfulness and unfaithfulness from one monarchy to the next? Is it the fractured Israel of Jesus' day that was often characterized by legalism and rebellion and corruption? Is it the nation-state of Israel that exists today, a, a predominantly secular nation where only about half the population makes a claim to any sort of religious faith? So what Israel is it? Well, it's really none of those things. The Israel that Paul speaks of is the people of God's choosing, the people who were the true Israel, the people who remained faithful to God and faithful to their calling regardless of the faithlessness of the status quo. Paul says that God's going to sort all of this out, but, but Paul nevertheless makes the connection between true Israel and those who have come to faith in Christ and shows their commonality to be the root that is the God and Father of Jesus. Now, earlier in his letter to the Romans, back in chapter 9, he makes a very important distinction and says this, 
for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. And then Paul quotes, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Well, there was indeed a difference between those who claimed to be Israel because of ethnicity and those who understood that identity in light of God's promises. We, we who follow Jesus, are supposed to be grafted alongside the true Israel, the people of God. But I think that there's another identity that we share together as, as both branches and wild olive shoots. And that is that we are a dispersed people, a people lacking a single geographical center. I mean, sure, there's the actual nation of Israel and there's the city of Jerusalem, but there's no temple. In fact, there's more Jewish people living in the United States than in Israel itself. And yeah, there's the, the Vatican in Rome, but even Catholic Christians are scattered all over the world. And, and all kinds of other Christian denominations have places where their top leaders conduct business, but those are more like headquarters than they are centers of worship. So historically, what have these wild olive shoots, the ones we call Christians, ones grafted into the root that is God, right alongside the branches that share DNA with the patriarch Abraham, what have these people, us people, done to engage in a shared life as the people of God? Well, once you look back into history and Try to look beyond the attempts at merging church and state, which always ends up being an unholy alliance that damages the church. And, and look beyond the, the corruption and the oppression that has been the result of various forms of power and institutionalization. You find the authentic life of the people of God expressed in faithful communities. Over time, they have emerged in monasteries and orders, in mission outposts and underground gatherings, in homes and open spaces, in buildings that we label churches, and anywhere that devoted followers of Jesus can find in order to share this life that God has granted to us, a life that is for us and also for the sake of the world. I, I keep on seeing these articles popping up by, by various Christian leaders about how churches are changing as a result of the pandemic, just like everything is changing. Uh, there seems to be an overall loss of people from many churches, and, and that's too bad, except it is often what happens when difficulties arise. There's a new appreciation for the technology that has allowed churches like ours to continue services and small groups and things like that. Now, the, the technology isn't new to us but we're learning to use it in new ways. But one of the most important things is the way that Christians have been discovering new ways of being together. I mean, think about our own situation. The vine hasn't met for a Sunday service in our regular space for a year now, a year. I mean, this would have been unthinkable in the past and yet here we are. So there have been online services, there have been online small groups, there have been picnics in the park and a few private gatherings here and there. 
Today, even, some of us are sharing this time together in, in homes and, and backyards. I mean, even as I speak right now, there are folks from the Vine in my backyard. Hi, everybody. Uh, sharing the service through a computer and drinking coffee and having snacks. Uh, in a little bit after the service, I'll, I'll go out to them. And, and like with all the groups, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together and, and we're going to pray for one another. Uh, and this is happening in several places right now. And this causes us to ponder the questions being asked by our Jewish and Christian forebears during a time of significant loss. What does it really mean to be the people of God? What does it really mean to be the church? God spoke to the, through the prophet Isaiah to help the people of Israel ask themselves those types of questions. What does it really mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be a people of proper devotion? What does it even mean to be Israel? And they were challenged to try to understand fasting, an important worship practice, as a demonstration of God's love, compassion, and justice, rather than just the checking off of a religious box. I have to wonder, is there a way that God is speaking to the church at large today about the difference between limiting the church to a building or a service or even a series of programs and expressing our faith as the church in all kinds of gatherings of faithful people. Now, I, I suppose this seems obvious to a, a lot of it, a lot of us. I, my thought is it's probably very obvious to those who are involved in the laundry shower ministry as they gather regularly to care for others. But I, I still wonder if, if there isn't a new lesson for us somewhere in all of this. Even with all the challenges that we face, I, I know that we all long for the day to come when we can gather together in person for weekly worship. But as we stand in the tradition of our spiritual ancestors, we are wise to continue to explore new ways to be together, even once the pandemic is over. And what some of us are doing today is just one of those ways, one of several ways. You know, like it or not, we, along with churches all over the world, have been forced over the last year to let go of our temple, meaning our physical center of worship, the, the place that we call church. And we have had to ask ourselves, is that it? Is that all there is to our life as a church? And the answer, which has come in the midst of significant loss, has been no. Th that is not all that there is. Any more than fasting is nothing more than a day of humility. We have never lost our worship center because our center is Jesus. Jesus, the one who claimed that he would be with us even in the smallest of gatherings. The true temple, the very reality of the risen Jesus Christ stands over and above all of our attempts at establishing our own geographical centers and he remains even when those centers collapse. It's kind of interesting to me 
from our gospel reading this morning that the interrogation and condemnation of Jesus actually took place in a home, the home of the high priest Caiaphas. It didn't happen in, in, a, in a separate institutional setting. It happened in a home. Now, perhaps the home of the high priest was designed for formal meetings, sort of like the way that, that the White House in Washington, D.C. is both a residence and a place of national business. Nevertheless, Jesus was rudely ushered into a home where he was falsely accused and declared worthy of death. Now, in ancient Israel, there is an ethic about home. Homes were not only for the families that occupied them, but also for others to enjoy welcome whether that was extended family members or friends or needy people hoping for assistance or even travelers passing through town. Home was a center of hospitality where love for others was made evident by a kiss of welcome, water for tired, dirty feet, a meal to share, and a warm place to sleep. But for Jesus, there would be no hospitable welcome there would only be abuse and condemnation. In a way, a lot of us probably feel like we've had to let go of the warm hospitality of what we've come to know as church. Over the last year, uh, just like gatherings in restaurants and bars and sporting events, coming together for worship has been kind of reimagined as a place to catch a deadly virus as gathering places are. That's how contagion works. And while we do take the pandemic seriously, we also lament that we've had to let go of what we've so deeply valued. But I wonder if, in having to let go of church, we're actually learning how to re-embrace Jesus. Or, or maybe it would be better to say that we are allowing ourselves to be re-embraced by him. Even as we gather in all the, the various places this morning, um, we offer to one another a place of deep hospitality, welcoming Jesus just as we welcome others, whether that's visitors or family members or whatever, and recognizing that Jesus is already with us, receiving us with open arms. In a way, it's a reversal of what Jesus experienced at the home of Caiaphas. I do not want us to let go of church, not in the sense of abandoning our worshiping covenantal community, but maybe having to let go of church as we've come to know it has been, whether we've realized it or not, a, a kind of lose your life to find it experience. Maybe in being forced to let go of what we've cherished, we are being led to find the deep treasures that are to be found in the root where we have been grafted. Maybe in our longing for spiritual sustenance, we are being invited anew to feast upon the bread of life. I close this morning with a prayer, also known as a collect for this fourth Sunday of Lent. Let's pray. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true 
bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread, that he may live in us, and we in him, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You know, each week we take time in this moment to be aware of the reality of ourselves, <laughs> being willing to tell the truth about ourselves, uh, the, the truth before God, the God who receives us even in our brokenness and our pain and our sin in order to forgive us. And we call this time of truth-telling confession. And so today we share these words together. Saving God, we are your people, yet the world cannot see this. We are your children and fail to live in peace. We are your voices and choose to be silent. We are your hands and feet and walk a different road. Forgive us for ignoring your love, for brushing aside your hand and trusting our own wisdom. Enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, to bring to you our joyful songs in the everyday moments of our lives, that your name might be glorified through our words and lives. Amen. And now, may the Lord enrich us with his grace and nourish us with his blessing. The Lord defend us from trouble and keep us from all evil. The Lord receives our prayers and absolves us from our offenses for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.